Section 8 of Make Mine Homogenized by Rick Raphael. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jeannie Whitfield. A Worm's Eye Point of View. Under Johnny's direction, a crew of technicians ran a power line to the slightly wrenched chicken house. There were loud squawks of indignation from the sleeping hens as the men threaded their way through the nest. The line was installed and the power applied. A 150-watt bulb illuminated the interior of the chicken house to the discordant clucking and cackling of the puzzled birds. Solomon, the big rooster, was perched on a crossbeam, head tucked under his wing. When the light flooded the shed, he jerked awake, fastened a startled and unblinking stare at the strange sun. He scrambled hastily and guiltily to his feet, throwing out his great chest, crowed a shrieking hymn to Thomas A. Edison. Johnny chuckled as the technicians jumped at the sound. He left the hen house and went back to the house and to bed. He set his alarm clock for 4 a.m. and dropped immediately into a deep and exhausted sleep. When he and the sleepy-eyed Peterson went into the chicken house at 4.30, there were 11 of the golden eggs resting on the straw nest. They turned the remainder of the normal eggs over to Hetty, who whipped up a fast, enormous breakfast. While Peterson and Johnny were eating, a writing team of AEC public information men who had arrived during the night were polishing a formal press release to be given to the waiting reporters at eight. The phones had been manned throughout the night. Peterson's bleary-eyed aide came into the kitchen and slumped into a chair at the table. Get yourself a cup of coffee, boy, Hetty ordered, while I fix you something to eat. How you like your eggs? Over easy, Miss Thompson, and thanks, he said wearily. I think I've got everything lined up, Doctor. The eggs are all packed, ready to go in your car, and the car will be ready in about ten minutes. They're still setting up downrange, but they should be all in order by the time you get there. The biomen and the others should be assembled in the main briefing room at range headquarters. I've ordered a double guard around the barn to be maintained until the animal boys have finished their on-the-ground test and they're padding a device band to take Sally to the labs when they're ready. And, uh, oh yeah, I almost forgot. The commissioner called about ten minutes ago and said to tell you that the Russians are going to make a formal protest to the UN this morning. They say we're trying to wipe out the People's Republic by contaminating their milk. The sound of scuffling in the yard and loud yells of protest came through the back porch window. The door swung open and a spluttering, irate Barney was thrust into the room, still in the clutches of a pair of armed security policemen. Get your hands off of me, Barney roared, and he struggled and he squirmed impotently in their grip. Doc, tell these pistol-packing bellhops to turn me loose. We caught him trying to get into the barn, sir, one of the officers told Peterson. Of course I was going into the barn, the indignant ranch hand screamed. Where'd you think I would go to milk a cow? Peterson smiled. It's all right, Fred. It's my fault. I should have told you Mr. Hatfield has free access. The security men released Barney. He shook himself and glared at them. I'm terribly sorry, Barney, Dr. Peterson said. I forgot that you would be going down to milk the cows, and I'm glad you reminded me. Do me a favor and milk Sally first, will you? I want to take that milk, or whatever it is, with us when we leave in a few minutes. The sun was crawling up the side of the mountains when Johnny and Dr. Peterson swung out of the ranch yard between the two armored scout cars 
for the sixty-mile trip down range road dew glistened in the early rays of light and the clear cool morning air held the hint of the heat sure to come by mid-morning there was a rush of photographers toward the gate as the little convoy left the ranch a battery of cameras grabbed shots of the vehicles heading south it was the beginning of a day that changed the entire foreign policy of the united states it was also the day that started a host of the nation's finest nuclear physicists tottering toward psychiatrist couches in rapid order in the next few days peterson's crew reinforced by hundreds of fellow scientists technicians and military men learned what johnny culpepper already knew they learned that one sally's milk diluted by as much as four hundred parts of pure water made a better fuel than gasoline when ignited they also learned that two in reduced degrees of concentration it became a substitute for any explosive of known chemical composition three brought in contact with the compound inside one of the golden eggs it produced an explosive starting at the kiloton level of one egg to two cups of milk and went up the scale but leveled off at a peak as the recipe was increased four could be controlled by mixing jets to produce any desired stream of explosive power and five they didn't have the wildest idea what was causing the reaction in that same order it brought one standard oil stock down to the value of wallpaper two ditto for dupont three a new purge in the top level of the supreme soviet four delight to rocketeers at holman air force research center Cape Canaveral and Vandenberg Air Force Base, and five agonizing bits of hair tearing to every chemist, biologist, and physicist who had a part in the futile attempts to analyze the two ingredients of what the press had labeled Thompson's eggnog, while white-coated veterinarians, agricultural experts, and chemists prodded and poked Sally's Cloverdale Marathon 3. Others were giving a similar going over to Hetty's chicken clock, solomon's outraged screams of anger echoed across the desert as they subjected him to foul indignities never before endured by a rooster weeks passed and with each new one experiments disclosed new uses for the amazing eggnog while sally placidly chewed her cud and continued to give a steady five gallons of concentrated fury at each milking solomon's harem dutifully deposited from five to a dozen golden spheres of packaged powder every day at the same time the rocket research engineers completed their test on the use of the eggnog in the early hours of june fourth a single stage two egg thirty five gallon atlas rocket poised on the launching pads of cape canaveral from the loudspeaker atop the massive blockhouse came the countdown x minus twenty seconds X minus ten seconds. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, fire. The control officer stabbed the firing button, and deep within the atlas a relay clicked, activating a solenoid that pushed open a valve. A thin stream of Sally's milk shot in from one side of the firing chamber to blend with a fine spray of egg batter coming from a jet in the opposite wall. Spewing a solid tail of purple fire, the atlas leaped like a wasp stung heifer from the launching pads and thundered into space. The fuel orifices continued to expand to maximum preset opening. 
In ten seconds, the nose cone turned from cherry red to white heat and began slopping its outer ceramic coating. At slightly more than 43,000 miles an hour, the great missile cleaved out of the atmosphere into the void of space, leaving a shockwave that cracked houses and shattered glass for 50 miles from the launching point. A week later, America's newest rocket vessel, weighing more than 30 tons and christened the Eggnog, was launched from the opposite coast at Vandenberg. Hastily modified to make the new fuel, the weight in space originally designed for the common garden variety rocket fuel, was filled with automatic camera and television equipment. In its stern stood a six-egg, 100-gallon engine, while in the nose was a small one-egg, 14-quart braking engine to slow it down for the return trip through the atmosphere. Its destination? Mars. A week later, the eggnog braked down through the troposphere, skidded to a piddling 2,000 miles an hour through the stratosphere, automatically sprouted gliding wing stubs in the atmosphere, and planed down to a spraying halt in the Pacific Ocean, 50 miles west of Ensenada in Baja, California. Aboard were man's first views of the red planet. The world went mad with jubilation. From the capitals of the free nations, congratulation poured into Washington. From Moscow came word of a 100-ton spaceship to be launched in a few days, powered by a mixture of vodka and orange juice discovered by a bartender in Novorosk, who was studying chemistry in night school. This announcement was followed 24 hours later by a story in Pravda proving conclusively that Sally Slobodel Marathon III was a direct descendant of Nikita's Mujik Joskny V, a prize Guernsey bull produced in the barns of the Sopolov People's Collective 26 years ago. Late in August, Air Force Major Clifton Wadsworth Quartermain climbed out of the port of the 200-ton, two-dozen egg, 230-gallon space rocket Icarus, the first man into space and back. He had circled Venus and returned. No longer limited by fuel weight factors, scientists had been able to load enough shielding into the huge Icarus to protect a man from the deadly bombardment of the Van Allen radiation belts. On September 15th, Sally's Cloverdale Marathon III, having been milked harder and faster than any Guernsey in history, went dry. Less than half of the approximately 1,200 gallons of fuel she had produced during her heydays remained on hand in the AEC storage vaults. Three days later, Solomon, sprinting after one of his harem, who was playing hard to get, beelined into the path of a security police jeep. There was an agonized squawk, a shower of feathers, and mourning. A short time later, the number of golden eggs dropped daily until one morning there were none. They never reappeared. The United States had stockpiled 26 dozen in an underground cave deep in the Rockies. Man who had burst like a butterfly into space crawled back into his cocoon and pondered upon the stars from a worm's eye point of view. End of section 8. Recording by Jeannie Whitfield, USA.